It's been a long debate. Slavery or states' rights? Two in the same. Other reasons? It's, it's a crazy little field. But on tonight's episode, we're going to try to delve into the origins of the Civil War and settle the debate between slavery or states' rights once and for all. But first, a word from our sponsors. In 1861, Mississippi politicians wrote up a secession document, after seceding from the Union, of course. In this tumultuous time for America, there were, had to be reasons why a state would leave. Mississippi says, quote, In the momentous step which our state has taken of dissolving its connection with the government of which we so long formed a part, it is but just that we should declare the prominent reasons which have induced our course. Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. Its labor supplies the product which constitutes by far the largest and most important portions of the commerce of the earth. These products are peculiar to the climate verging on the tropical regions, and by an impervious law of nature, none but the black race can bear exposure to the tropical sun. These products have become necessities of the world, and a blow at slavery is a blow at commerce and civilization. That blow has been long aimed at the institution, and was at the point of reaching its consummation. There was no choice left but submission to the mandates of abolition, or a dissolution of the Union, whose principles had been subverted to work out our ruin. Like this in other documents, the United States was going through a time where it was falling apart from the seams. So, while that seems like it should end the debate on states' rights or slavery, the debate gets much more complicated, which should draw one to do their research. The Civil War, or the origins of the Civil War, don't just begin in 1861. They go all the way back to before the founding of America. And tonight we're going to look at the story of the progression of slavery Uh, the idea of states' rights, and eventually, disunion. In 1800s America, it wasn't out of place to see scenes where blacks would be bent over in fields, uh, probably with scars covering their backs uh, from lashings and whippings. Uh, bent over tilling the ground or harvesting crops or most famously cotton. You know, skin rays with those hints of red reminders of the terrible things they'd have to endure. However, this was normal life for people in America at the time. It was just commonplace. And at the time, of course, a black man and woman could only dream of being free, released of their shackles and sent out into the world. Well, they might not be treated like they were free, but it was much better than their current situation. In modern times, we agree, at least the majority, unfortunately I have to say at least the majority, that slavery was a terrible evil, a plague that whites placed on their own shoulders. In 18th and 19th century American households, it was just a common belief uh, that such an institution was okay. 
For example, in an 1845 publication entitled Slavery by a man named James Smith, he wrote of the evil that, quote, it is admitted that slavery did exist among the Jews and was regulated by scriptural authority. It was universal at the Christian era and that some of the primitive disciples held slaves and that slaves were to be encouraged to be contented in their situation. Thus, many folks in the nation believed that it was a holy right to own another human that they might have even believed they treated their slaves well as far as they were concerned. However, the conditions they put the blacks in were horrific, of course, and nearly unimaginable today, to today's standards. Mr. Smith would continue to beg the question, quote, first, whether a Christian man can under any circumstances hold slaves, and second, whether abolition ought to be immediate or gradual. So, for 1845, this is some pretty, you know, radical thought and publication, while the abolition movement had been born out of the 1830s with the Liberator newspaper, it was just, it was still viewed as radical, especially if you were someone in the South who owned slaves and were reading this, you probably weren't going to be too happy. But one interesting thing to note with uh, the, the two questions that Mr. Smith came up with is the second one was whether abolition ought to be immediate or gradual. There, Just take in mind, there is no question if abolition should be immediate or gradual. It's whether abolition ought to be immediate or gradual. So Smith has in mind the idea that abolition will come about eventually. So that's one thing interesting to note about that quote. Uh, but the conditions most slaves faced in early America were, of course, brutal to say the least. They were doing hours of works, toil, or excuse me, hours of work, toiling in the heat, possibly facing beating or whipping for stepping out of line or doing something that was seen as wrong in their master's eyes. And at night, the worst thing was, after all the work, there was no pay to be seen other than sleep, which was sometimes in shackles or uh, in, in cellars, in small houses or huts or in prison-like homes. Not to mention, of course, the constant barrage of yelling, name-calling, and more from the white folks. As Smith had written, many whites believed that uh, the slaves were supposed to be content with their miserable lives. And after hundreds of years... Uh, should they not be already used to or happy with the situation they've unfortunately inherited? Of course, it's hard to grapple with the idea of slavery today. And many whites believe that it was a religious right uh, and it was a holy thing to do. Uh, and most of all, importantly, that it was, it was a good thing uh, is quite shocking. But we have to look at slavery as... With it, or rather, with this question, was it the catalyst of the American Civil War? The first American slave arrived on the shores of Virginia in 1607 at the colony of Jamestown, settled, of course, by the Virginia Company. He was quickly put to work. Uh, the slaves built and uh, farmed all around the land. Uh, from there, when the expansion of the colonies began, so did the expansion of slavery. Soon enough, slavery became one of the country's most profitable modes of farming. The expansion of this peculiar institution, coupled with the invention of the cotton gin by Eli Whitney, proved a devastating lash to any idea of black freedom at the time. So where I would like to start this uh, long journey is in 1819, February 13th, 1819 specifically. It was a chilly day in Washington. President James Monroe was still in bed in the early morning hours of the day. But like always, the cogs and gears of the government were running, because Congress was always at work, with or without the president. 
It was like a machine that never ceased, only needing oiled and to have parts replaced every so often before it would once again smoothly run. On this day, however, Congress would see its first of many kinks that would slow down the machine to a near halt, while the other workers tried to figure out what went what went wrong, excuse me, and how to fix it. This particular kink in the system was the introduction of amendment to the House floor by an older man named James Talmadge. Not James Talmadge of the Washington Spiring. <laughs> Talmadge had a head of dark hair that swirled at his forehead and a wide and long nose perched above his thin lips and his plan sparked quite the national controversy. Uh, in recent years, the Missouri area had been pushing for statehood, and the Southern congressman wanted the territory to be entered as a slave state into the Union, expanding the influence of King Cotton, of course, and their economy. All the while, Northern congressmen battled to enter Missouri as a free state, seeing it as an area ripe to foster the industrial habits uh, of the North. Geographically, it seems that Missouri would fit right into the line of free states, but the struggle came not only from the South, but those within the territory who also felt their home state should reap the benefits of slavery. King Cotton controlled most of American trade by the onset of the Civil War, as we know, and was an expanding industry in the 1820s when the planter class, made up of southern plantation owners, took hold of political and economic power. A graph by Gale made in 1999 displays a trend of cotton exportation in the United States. It's quite understandable, actually, when reading this data from the chart why plantations were such a lucrative and successful business to those looking to make money. The graph shows that by 1820, cotton made up 32% of the country's exports. By 1840, 51.6%. And the number reaches 57.5% of exports by 1860. But why does all this matter, though? Aside from its economic benefits, what's the big deal? Shouldn't the North support slavery for that reason, the economic success that it would bring to the country? The big deal uh, lies in the, uh, excuse me, the geography of Missouri and an old document written during George Washington's presidency. See, during America's years of youth in 1787, Congress passed the Northwest Ordinance, which took the colonial charters of states like Massachusetts and Connecticut and placed them under review. The old charters gave these states, as well as Virginia, claims to the far western lands near Canada, or what is now uh, modern-day Midwest America, but was called the Northwest Territory uh, back then. The ordinance removed these articles and gave the land to any new state that needed it or was going to pop up out west, of course. As for the important part, slavery, it was banned in the territory unless it was a punishment for a crime. Now, I'd like to make a call back to the beginning of the episode when I read the Mississippi uh, document for secession. They make a good note and reference to this in that document. They say, quote, that we do not overstate the dangers to our institution, a reference to a few facts will sufficely pr prove, excuse me, the hostility to this institution commenced before the adoption of the Constitution and was manifested in the well-known Ordinance of 1787 in regard to the Northwestern Territory, end quote. So, even in the documents of succession, especially with Mississippi, they make reference to this Northwest Ordinance passed in 1787. And they realized that it was, uh, this ordinance was a threat to what they call their institution, and, uh, as course, as we had seen in that quote uh, from their document, 
They think that slavery is a good thing because the blacks can tolerate the heat and working conditions that they live in, which is insanely crazy. Anyways, back to 1819. Why make all this fuss about Missouri? The reason being that it sat well in those defined territories written in the 18, or excuse me, 1787 ordinance. This meant that slavery was prohibited by law in that region. As well due to its northern geographic location, becoming a slave state was quite controversial and would upset the balance of Congress between free and slave states. It was in that same year in 1819 that Alabama entered the Union as a slave state and there was no such debate or outrage, simply based on its location in the deep agricultural south and the power northern states held in Congress. However, the southerners would not give up. Why should some old document get in the way? These ideals of sectionalism began a slow burn of regional hatred and division. If there was ever a point where the Civil War became an inevitability, it was here. On that February day, <clears throat> excuse me, however, Representative Talmadge, James Talmadge that I mentioned earlier, had the inspiration to go to Congress and propose an amendment to be passed, aptly named after himself the Talmadge Amendment, was to be introduced into the bill for Missouri's statehood. The bill banned any sort of importation of quote-unquote new slaves into the state. Not only that, but slaves already taking residence in the territory would be liberated from their forced and miserable servitude. As for children born slaves, they would be freed once they reached the age of 25. The southern representatives exploded in a wave of fury, of course, irateness being painted upon their faces. Most of this anger uh, radiated from the Virginia congressmen, who were well aware and supportive of their home state, who was looking for a new location to export their massive surplus of slaves. One of these angered congressmen was William Cobb, a six-foot-tall, 41-year-old veteran of the War of 1812, and a bitter man who proudly flaunted his sourness. He responded to Talmadge, looking him in the eyes from a few yards away and berated the man with words of indignation. Quote, you have kindled a fire which all the waters of the ocean cannot put out, which seas of blood can only extinguish. He began raising with a clenched fist in the air with all the fury of a southern gentleman, as you can imagine. Quote, if a, delusion, a dissolution of the Union must take place, let it be so. End quote. He continued, his voice echoing through the Congress. If civil war which gentlemen so much threaten must come, I can only say, let it come, he said. With his prophetic statement hanging in the air for a silent second, one could only imagine the men in the warm room of the Capitol looking about with a sense of fear, now especially with the knowledge that such an issue could rip the nation into pieces, and that it might be an inevitability. Henceforth, the debate began. So, should Missouri fall under northern ideals or southern? One issue took precedence with most, uh, not so much slavery, but rather the unbalanced Congress that the country would have if Missouri became a slave state. The peculiar institution was always a hot topic when it came to any sort of anti-slavery sentiment in the government. It was shrugged off the shoulders of the Founding Fathers when writing the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, which is a pro-slavery document, and just about anything after that. There were those, however, like the now-aged Thomas Jefferson, who entertained the idea of gradual emancipation. It was Jefferson, after all, who proposed the notion that it was best for slaves to be sent off to new territories to thin out slavery rather than to have it all focused on the old states such as Virginia, Maryland, or the Carolinas. 
Unfortunately, those Southerners who did feel that uh, the end of slavery was necessary wanted as little Northern help in planning it as possible, making them quite unpopular to the majority of the system. So we can see here that all the parts are working against each other. Northerners who want abolition, Northerners who don't want abolition, Southerners who want abolition, and Southerners who don't want abolition. Of course, the Southerners who don't want abolition, the Northern men who don't want abolition, are probably still going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe based on the ideals being put in place. And the Southern men who want abolition are definitely going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Northern men who want abolition. Because if anyone knows how to deal with slavery and abolition, it'll probably be the South, it was their thinking. And if anybody knows how to deal with slavery, it's the North, as their thinking went. So... It's a really interesting, intense moment in Congress to take a look at and study. But when the Talmadge Amendment came to vote in the House of Representatives, most Northern congressmen voted yes, actually getting eight, 80 to 14 in the votes. And an unsurprising turnout from the Southern representatives voting 2 to 64. The proposed amendment did not fare as well in the Senate, being shot down in mere moments. Speaker of the House, a Kentucky man named Henry Clay, realized, like many others, that if Missouri was to gain statehood as a slave state, the South would control the majority in Congress and essentially have the power to control the government. Because if anything was to be done to the balance of power in Congress, it had to be done quickly, and no one was going to be better for the job than Henry Clay. Clay was a tall, thin yet imposing figure uh, and knew that he had to act quickly. For a short period of time, no more than a day at most, he gathered his thoughts, sifted through documents, collected maps to study, thought of plans that could work, and some that would fall through immediately. At some point during this lengthy period of thought, Clay's mind reached a compromise that lit his eyes and mind with a fiery passion. Now, of course, we now know Clay as the great compromiser, and this was to be his first, and possibly one of his most influential next to the Compromise of 1850. Uh, this compromise was simple, and the plan could be outlined in three steps. 1. Allow the admittance of Missouri as a slave state. This drove northern congressmen mad as they squirmed angrily in their old seats that adorned the rows and desks of the Capitol building, but he coaxed them to calm down as he continued. Second step, admit Maine as a free state. This came as a surprise to many, because in the early 1800s, the Pine, Street, or excuse me, the Pine Tree State was actually a territory that belonged to Massachusetts and was ripe for statehood. Thus, it would settle the score and balance Congress. Uh, the third step, ban all slavery in the states that lie north of the 3630 parallel line, uh, excuse me, in the Louisiana Purchase, save for Missouri, of course. Many congressmen gawked at this prospect, ensuring the full ban of slavery in every admitted state above that line. Was uh, rather quite, uh, quite the radical step. However, the Clay Compromise is fairly popular and passes through Congress. When the Compromise passed, a bill of statehood was quickly drawn up for Missouri, and it laid out the counties, districts, a lot of spaces for schools, seminaries, canals, and roads, reading that, quote, 5% of the net proceeds of the sale of lands lying within the said territory or state, and which shall be sold by Congress from and after the first day of January next, after uh, deducting all expenses incident to the same, shall be reserved for making public roads and canals, of which three-fifths shall be applied to those objects within the state. End quote. The document also laid out an election for congressmen by stating that all free white male citizens of the United States 
who will have arrived at the age of 21 years and have resided in said territory three months previous to the day of election, and all other persons qualified to vote for representatives to the General Assembly of the said territory shall be qualified to be elected, and they are hereby qualified and authorized to vote. It takes the authors of the document 25 individual sections, with almost each having their own subsections, for the subject of slavery to even come up. This could very well have been done intentionally as far as giving the appearance that northerners don't care, making it one of the last things to be spoken about, or perhaps that's just where it fell on a scale of importance to these congressmen. Clay's Compromise clearly lays out two types of laws that the state government of Missouri cannot pass. Quote, the General Assembly shall not have the power to pass laws, one, for the emancipation of slaves, without the consent of their owners or without paying them before such emancipation. A full equivalent for such slaves so emancipated, and two, to prevent bona fide immigrants to this state or actual settlers therein from bringing from any of the United States or from any other uh, territories such persons as may there be deemed to be slaves, so long as any persons of the same description are allowed to be held as slaves by the laws of this state. End quote. And these two uh, quote unquote forbidden laws, Clay and Congress are telling the state government of Missouri that they are not allowed to liberate slaves without an agreement from their owners first, or monetary compensation for the owners lost. And, of course, to never (laughs) deny, this is my favorite part, bona fide immigrants or actual settlers therein. White males from bringing slaves or any persons of the same description, African Americans, possibly other racial minority groups included in that, into the state regardless of where they are being brought from. So, that's kind of an interesting add-in there. It's definitely important to note that, because without it, it kind of makes the compromise pointless. However, the compromise does continue to describe the slave laws that will enter Missouri law. It is uh, this portion of the document that will define the ability of a state to control slavery. Uh, Quote, They shall have the power to pass laws, one, to prohibit the introduction into this state of any slaves who may have committed any high crime in any other state or territory. Two, to prohibit the introduction of any slave for the purpose of speculation or as an article of trade or merchandise. And three, to prohibit the introduction of any slave or the offspring of any slave who heretofore may have been or who hereafter may be imported from any foreign country into the United States or any territory thereof in contravention of any existing statute of the United States and four to permit the owners of slaves to emancipate them saving the right of creditors where the person so emancipating will give security that the slave so emancipated shall not become a public charge <coughs> excuse me it shall be their duty as soon as may be to pass such laws as may be necessary as one to prevent free negroes and mulattoes from coming to and settling in this state under any pretext whatsoever and two to oblige the owners of slaves to treat them with humanity and to abstain from all injuries to extending to life or limb end quote so that seems like a lot of nonsense but it really it's really important it's saying that um the state government is allowed to they're allowed to allow people essentially to free their slaves which is really interesting because it's not something you see happen too often um uh, noting here that 
to oblige the owners of slaves to treat them with humanity and to abstain from all injuries to them extending to life or limb. We know this will not happen at all because it's it's a staple of slavery in America that people beat their slaves for disrespecting them or acting out of line. So we can see that these laws are kind of expected for the time. And they're acceptable, especially for the time. While they might be a little radical to some, one must remember that the institution of slavery has existed in America and the colonies since the 1600s. And this is, of course, prior to the abolitionist movement in uh, 1830s, as I'd mentioned with, like, the Liberator magazine. So, um, Missouri was eventually entered into the Union as a slave state. Meanwhile, again, Maine, the equalizer... Uh, also entered its useful days of statehood as a free northern state. It's due to this compromise, uh, essentially, that the first battle line of the Civil War was drawn, the 3630 parallel, and Henry Clay, later to be named uh, the Great Compromiser, to become a widely known figure in the American public sphere. And of course, the decision did not go unmarked by sentiment of disunion, as we talked about earlier. Uh, many Southerners argued that now was the time to pull out and succeed as their own independent nation. They clearly had the economic stability to do so, as southern plantations spit out nearly 75% of the world's cotton supply at one point, and with slavery to boot, they were well and ready to go into the world, uh, as an independent nation, that is. Uh, Of course, they would have a rough start of things, as every young nation does, but surely they might have been able to thrive for many years to come. So, that's it for today's episode, guys. Um, I'm going to make this a uh, couple-part series. I would like to kind of get back into the podcast thing. I had a couple episodes, as you might have remembered, but they actually got deleted. That was my bad. So, I, I'd like to give you guys something new, a little more interesting, well-researched, and thought together and uh, plotted out. So, in the next episode I do, whenever I get around to it, we'll be talking about the nullification crisis. And then, uh, a little bit about the abolitionist movement. So, uh, stay tuned for those guys. Thanks for listening, and I will see you in the next one.